Imagine you're playing poker with the high rollers and you're up by a lot. You're reading your opponents like a book and knowing what they are thinking without a single word being spoken. Is it luck? Nope. Is it fate? Not a chance. Your success is all about paying attention to the facts. That's F-A-C-S without the T. This week, we're going to talk with the one and only Paul Ekman. He's the person that developed a way to decipher emotions and lies with our eyes. We'll learn about how he discovered this skill and how that can do more than help you win a round of poker. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out why this skill may be great for games, but not perhaps for national security. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you on an honest journey into the life of a person who changed the face of science, one micro-expression at a time. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Once in a generation, a scientist comes along who changes the way we look at the world. Marie Curie helped us to understand radioactivity. Sigmund Freud changed the way we look at psychology, although maybe not for the better. Einstein? Well, we all know what he did for physics. And Carl Sagan opened our eyes to the wonders of the cosmos. These are some famous names you learned in school, but there are so many others who have impacted science for the better. The majority of those discovering scientific marvels, however, remain anonymous in the general public. They don't have best-selling books, movies, or podcasts, and simply do their work in quiet obscurity, hoping their legacy will be etched in the work of generations to come. Then, there's Paul Ekman. Much like Helen Fisher, Julie Payette, and Lisa Sanders, all of whom have appeared on this show, he has spent his life working to change the way science is done. For him, it was about detecting emotions, and particularly, lies. Insight into emotions is a holy grail for psychology. We'd be able to know when someone is lying. We'd be able to appreciate pain. We might even be better at mapping the brain so we know what's going on in our heads as well as our hearts. But the drive for Ekman wasn't about changing the world. It was about taking a theoretical science and turning it into one that could be applied with confidence. You started off in the world of psychotherapy. What was it that led to your change in profession towards research? It was my experience in the U.S. Army when I was drafted, where I found that by doing research, you can benefit a much larger number of people than you can by doing psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, at best, if you're successful, you benefit a small group of people. With research, if you find things that are really useful, you can benefit a very large number of people. Also, doing psychotherapy, you're pretty passive. I'm not passive, I'm active. I like to be able to mix things up. I much prefer a applied research role, which is the role that I've followed in my life. I've seen this transition tried before, and it's not always successful particularly when it comes to getting that funding for something new that you're not known for. Did you have any troubles? And if so, how did you get past them? 
but it was hard and it took a long time. When I was just about to give up, because I didn't literally have the money to pay the next month's rent, I got a phone call from two guys that said, this is uh, Lionel Tiger and Robin Fox. And we run a small foundation, and we like your work, and we're in San Francisco. We'd like to meet with you and see if you need any financial support. And I said, Fox and Tiger? Come on, who is this pulling and offering me money? Who is this pulling my leg? Who is this really? But it turned out it really was Lionel Tiber and Robin Fox, and they really were offering me money, and if it hadn't been for their support, my work would never have continued. I would have had to quit and start doing psychotherapy in order to put food on the table. Around 1969, you found out that we would be able to use these non-verbal cues to be able to detect, of all things, lies. When you first started out on this research path, were you thinking that you'd be able to develop a system that would be universal to all humans, or did you think that there would be different types of confounders, such as race, creed, ethnicity, that type of thing? I didn't have any idea, literally. I didn't know what I would find. First thing I did was to read everything in English that had been written about expression and gesture. That was the subject of my first book that was a review of all the research up until then that had been widely ignored in the last 20 years. It had been ignored not because it wasn't promising. It was very promising. There were many interesting findings. But the Nazi social scientists in the 30s had come out with the idea that you can identify the inferior races from their gestures and expressions. And that gave it a very bad name. Nobody wanted to work on it because they didn't want to be identified with the Nazis. Work basically stopped around 1935 until I came along. Up until then, there were some very interesting and promising findings, but the Nazis, uh, uh, who were not saying that you could understand emotion, they were saying that you could identify inferior racial groups. Uh, that's a very different matter. But it was enough to discourage scientists, other than me, from working on this uh, expression or gesture. And so this was the basis for the facial effect scoring technique, which is what you called it back in 1971. Yes, it had the acronym FAST, FAST, which was a joke because it was very slow to use, and published it as a general method for measuring facial behavior. And then I was at an anthropology conference, and I met an uh, anthropologist, at a bar uh, having a drink before dinner and he showed me a movement that wasn't in my system. I thought I covered the whole thing. <laughs> and the movement he showed was uh, of the muscle on, that pushes your chin and lower lip up, the mentalis muscle. And I thought, oh my God, he's right. We've missed it completely. The only way to get 
the entire picture was to base it on the anatomy, and I had to go and study the anatomy of the face. And then what I found was that we didn't have a functional anatomy. We had a dead anatomy. We didn't have an anatomy that was based on how the face moves, but just naming muscles when you took the skin off of a cadaver and looked at what you saw. And uh, it was practically useless. I already had had some innate ability to voluntarily control my facial muscles. My mother used to say to me, stop making all those funny faces. You're gonna, they're going to freeze on your face. <laughs> Unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to see that I could make a living from my ability to do that. Take us through the process of being able to categorize all those movements so that we end up with a catalog, if you will, of living anatomy as opposed to what you had said earlier, the dead anatomy. What I did was to study the textbooks to see how they had uh, tried to name the muscles and then try to locate those muscles in my own face and to see whether I could contract them singly, one at a time. I was pretty good at that. So then I photographed each single muscle movement. And I think there were about 12. And then I contracted two muscles at the same time, how appearance changed. Well, that produced about 30, and then I did three, and then I did four. I did it up to six, by which point I had over 30,000 expressions, recognizably different, and I could identify, because I had produced them, I knew which muscles had to contract to produce those expressions. I got the facts. Just because we have facts doesn't mean that people are going to accept it right away. What was the response like from the rest of the community after 1978 when the facial action coding system was published? I had been wasting my time that uh, why bother to precisely describe the facial movements so they don't mean anything? Well, of course, they mean a great deal. They are the primary signal system for emotion. But at the time I was starting my research, if you looked in most psychology textbooks, emotion wouldn't be in the index. There was no knowledge or interest in emotion. Uh, that's in part because there was no way to measure it. Psychologists have only been, they almost believed if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. I think some still believe that. But of course, I introduced a way to objectively measure anything the face can do. And because of that, the field of emotion grew and became a major field from being completely ignored and neglected to being one of the hottest fields in research. Exactly. I remember in the 1980s when this whole idea of studying emotion just took off long before emotional intelligence and all of these things. We wanted to get the biology figured out for the psychology. It's interesting that that happened after the facial action coding system was released. It was almost like people now had the ability to measure something visually so that they could then identify another means to link up what's going on in the brain. And with the extent of MRIs and, and other abilities to look at the brain, you could start making these links. Did that particular research 
touch upon anything that you were working on or did it help to change or solidify why you had put together the, the coding system in the first place? Well, they're not unrelated. I, I do think uh, I can take credit for having provoked interest and emotion by providing a tool for measuring the face. Without a, that tool, there would have been uh, no interest. Researchers are only interested in what they can research. If you don't have a way of measuring it, then you don't study it, and you don't pay any attention to it, and you don't write about it, and it isn't taught. The facial action coding system is like a dictionary of sorts. But instead of language, facts explores movements. There are 43 muscles in the face, and when we feel an emotion, some of them move. We can't help it. It's part of our human nature. What FACTS does is catalog these movements into what are known as action units. Those units include the raising of a brow, the wrinkling of the nose, or the puckering of the lips. Other movements, such as those from our head and our eyes, also have specific codes. When you compile all of them together, you have 98 specific action codes. Now, this may seem relatively simple at first, but it begins to get quite complicated when you start putting combinations together. Some movements happen at the same time, while others may occur one right after the other. These combinations can then be deciphered into a particular emotion. And then there's depth. That's the intensity of the reaction. It can be as little as a trace, a micro-expression, and almost impossible to see. Or they can be obvious. You're really feeling it. Ekman and his system have been the basis for thousands of articles and citations. His discoveries have multiplied into other realms, not only of science, but also of beings. There are now systems to code the facial expressions of monkeys and even horses. But while his work gave the research community a new branch of science, Ekman decided that he was going to help the rest of the world as well. He started the Paul Ekman Group in 2004 and hoped his work would be useful to both companies and individuals. Let's just say the entertainment world was interested. Have you seen the movie Inside Out? Those six emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, disgust, and surprise were all straight out of the facial action coding system. Did you like the Lord of the Rings trilogy? How about Gollum? Well, the reason you felt for him was because his facial expressions were based on facts. It gave him humanity that allowed us to feel sorry for him, even when he was stealing my precious. Before facts came around, we had to deal with incredibly poor animation that sometimes didn't even come close to the original. If you don't believe me, just Google the Scorpion King CGI from the movie The Mummy Returns. Great movie, horrible special effects. But now that we have facts in place, we can be sure that the world of animation will allow us to feel for the characters like we would feel for each other in real life. And of course, when Hollywood starts calling, you know you've made it. And for Ekman, this turned into a call from Samuel Baum, a producer looking for his next show. What came next was going to change Ekman's life forever. 
we've now been able to identify the speed of a reaction. We know that most humans will react from a verbal cue anywhere from half to three quarters of a second. They'll react to a visual cue within even a quarter second. Some, some can get trained to even do it within a tenth of a second. That happens so quickly, and yet for some reason we still have the ability to pick it up with our own eyes or we can see it. Is there anything that you have done to be able to find a way to make our detection of these reactions faster, considering now that we know how fast they happen? Once I was the co-discoverer of the existence of what I called micro-expressions, very facial expressions that last less than a 25th of a second, that are so fast that most people miss them. I then developed a tool that teaches you how to be able to spot them as they occur, which most people didn't without using that tool. It's called a micro-expression training tool. It's on the Internet. It exists in dozens of languages. You don't need much language for it. It's mostly a training tool on how to see these very fast expressions. It's very popular. And who are your primary customers? I developed it expecting that its major users would be uh, psychotherapists. Turns out its major users are salespeople who want to gauge the reaction of the person they're trying to get to buy a product. You mentioned how popular this has become, the facial action coding system. And when things get popular, sometimes Hollywood likes to pay attention to this and do something about it. And you much like some of the other guests we've had on the show, have been honored with a television series called Lie to Me. It was one of my favorite shows when it was around. But one thing that I always find interesting is that the science is exaggerated for the sake of the audience. How much did the show differ from your work in terms of the science? And how did it feel to have Tim Roth be you? Well, I had specified that whoever was going to play me, the actor had to be... uh... Not an American. He had to be unmarried, and he had to be very abrasive. I wanted him to be as different from me as possible. I started a blog that I put, got Fox to put on their website called The Truth About Lie to Me. So every time a program appeared, I had a commentary on the Fox blog pointing out what was accurate and what was totally inaccurate in the that week's program. It got uh, a good readership and it got more interest in the program. The people at Fox and Samuel Baum allowed you to be able to have a blog that essentially pointed out the difference between the science that they saw on the show and the reality that came from your own research and work. I find that fascinating and endearing because it helps us to understand that, yeah, television can sometimes exaggerate. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, yes. Sometimes that's sort of an understatement. (laughs) You've only got about 40 minutes for content in an hour show when you take out the time for the commercials and station breaks and all of that. You don't want people to change channels. You want to keep them glued. So you can't really take a lot of time to explain something which means that you either oversimplify or you leave a lot unexplained. 
Mm-hmm. And the lie to me did both. However, it did arouse interest in the topic. And on the whole, I think it probably did more, I don't know, their harm or health than good. It's hard to say. I always was worried that someone who watched the show would think they had learned how to spot lies and would sit on a jury and falsely convict someone of a crime because they thought they were now such an expert at detecting lies. It takes more than watching Lie to Me to learn how to spot lies. That takes us about 30 hours to train someone to become uh, better than chance, and still they're nowhere near perfect. They get up to about the best people that we've trained after 20 or 30 hours of training get up to about 85 to 90 percent accuracy. Well, that means they misjudge 10% of the people. Now, probably without our training, they misjudge a larger percentage than 10%. So we've improved it, but it's far from perfect. You have achieved quite a bit over those 60 years, not just simply changing the way that we look and analyze human behavior, but perhaps something more. I did do what I think is an extremely important basic research that proved that Margaret Mead was wrong and Charles Darwin was right. Expressions of emotion are universal to the species. But that was my one piece of basic research. And the rest of what I've done in terms of research, it's all been very applied. It's all been directed towards trying to help deal with a particular problem. I'm most interested in the problem of identifying people who have malevolent intent, people who are intending to do harm to others. And I've published on that, and I think I have some findings on that that are useful. But it's a very difficult problem because misidentify someone as intending harm when they're not, you've caused them a lot of needless trouble. And if you fail to identify someone who's about to do harm and you miss them, you've also made a horrendous mistake. So it's not an easy problem to deal with, and yet it's a very important one. And uh, I've published quite a bit about that as well. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to put you to the test. If you had the ability to use facts right now, where might you want to use it? Well, for Paul Ackman in 2017, he suggested airport security. Makes sense. Imagine not having to worry about fitting those 100 milliliter containers into those one liter bags. Imagine never having to worry about taking off your shoes. All you would have to do is head into a scanner or talk to a person, maybe even while you're waiting in line, and they could determine whether you are a threat or just another traveler looking to get from point A to point B. Sounds like it could be a dream come true, doesn't it? But here's where the test comes in. Have you thought about the drawbacks? When it comes to training security personnel, Ekman has an objective perspective that may make you think twice about using faces to determine malice. Just in the last year, you published a report talking about how the facial action coding system and microexpressions can be used not for salespeople, but for security people in an airport. Take us through how that would work. Well, it's just teaching people how to 
recognize signs of possible malevolent intent. And really the question is, how many false positives, that is, how many people you're going to identify as a threat who aren't, and how many false negatives, how many people who are a threat you're going to miss. If you don't want to miss any, you're going to make a mistake on more. The two figures are related to each other. So if all you do is detain them and interview them more, maybe cause them to miss their airplane, but you don't make the mistake of putting somebody with malevolent intent on an airplane, I think that's acceptable. Uh, not, the airlines don't always agree. Not that they want to lose airplanes, but they don't want to lose customers to other airlines who get impatient because the plane is delayed. That's understandable. It's almost like malevolence is a disease and you're trying to diagnose it. Facial action coding system is just a way of measuring what the face does. Now, to measure what the face does doesn't tell you what it means. What does that appearance signify? What does it tell you about the person's motives or emotions or likely next actions? That's a separate question. You can't answer that question unless you've got a way of measuring the face, but just being able to measure the face doesn't answer the question. You've got to do research on those measurements to find out what particular combinations of facial movement tell us about what's going on, what the person intends, what they're likely to do next. And I did research on that as well and uh, published quite a bit about it. Didn't finish. It's not. It's a big topic. Still not finished. There aren't a large number of people working on it, regrettably, but uh, it's still there. For the listeners who do want to learn more about microexpressions, about your research, and maybe to be able to figure out microexpressions on their own, where can they go? Two places. They can buy a paperback book called Emotions Revealed. They should read that. It's got exercises in it. And then they should go online and use the METT, the microexpression training tool, which will teach them how to spot microexpressions. So those two steps together uh, will take them pretty far. It won't make them an expert, but it'll make them a lot better than they are now without that training. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you to see that truth is always the best policy. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. 
have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.